Hey, y'all. This is Donna from Georgia, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Enjoy, dreamers. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So, let's get started. I would first like to take the time to thank everyone who has continued to support California Dreaming on Patreon. I can't tell you how much it means to me that you think enough of the show to take the time to subscribe and support. No matter which tier you join, every little bit helps, and I'm very, very grateful for all of you. This week, I would like to thank Derek, Marcia C., Nicola H., Sasha S., Gina B., Eric M., and Vicki H. However, if you don't want to subscribe to Patreon but still would like to make a one-time donation to the show, you can do so using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. You can also support the show in other ways by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts and recommending the show in listening forums and discussion pages. Every little bit helps, little by little. Thank you again for all of your support. I also wanted to announce something pretty exciting. My family and I are going to be moving to Orange County very soon. As a matter of fact, we're going to start moving in tomorrow as I'm recording this. And I'm going to make sure that one of the first things I set up is my recording space because my ultimate goal is to not allow there to be any interruptions in our weekly show. But if there is, I will make sure to announce it on social media. And with our new situation, I'll be able to have more time and opportunity to put together more content for the listeners, if all goes as planned. So, fingers crossed. So, you've probably noticed that I seem to travel to Nevada pretty frequently. More so recently than I have in the past. And it's mainly because that's where my husband's family is from. I think I've told you that before. That's where he's from. And by the looks of it, we're probably going to move there sometime in the near future. California will always be my home, and I'll never stop talking about California crimes. Heaven knows that there is plenty out there. When I was a kid, Las Vegas was a favorite vacation destination for my parents. They enjoyed gambling, and we went pretty frequently when I was growing up. And when I go, I like to see all the sights and the casinos and the tourist attractions and things. And in recent years, you know, especially since I have all of you to talk to about crime, I like seeing the places that I've talked about in our show. There's only been a couple, but still, I like seeing those places that get mentioned here. 
Now, in all my travels to Nevada, what you never really see me talking about or posting about is playing cards. I might be on a slot machine for a few minutes, but for the most part, I am not one that enjoys sitting in front of a machine and feeding it money because I never really win. I try to break even, but then it turns into a waste of time. Like I said, I like going to visit places and seeing the sights and shopping and dining and all of that stuff. A few months back, I stopped by the outlet mall that is located on the Nevada side of the California-Nevada border, and I went by the Nike outlet store. And I told you that a pretty well-known case involved that store, and I think some of you may have guessed it. And when I went to Nevada this last weekend to attend a wedding, I passed by there again, and I was reminded that I still have yet to tell you that story. It involves a man who thought of himself as quite the gambler, so much so that he would quit his day job and join the professional gambling circuit. But as it would turn out, he wasn't as good as he'd like to think, based on how this story plays out. But he was a fixture at these tournaments and events for a time. Whether a professional or a casual gambler, there is a saying I'm certain that you've heard. The house always wins. And for the subject of our story today, this is certainly fitting, as he himself would end up being the biggest loser of all, in so many ways. In today's 82nd episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the pro poker player. Ernest Shearer Jr., or Ernie the Second, and his wife Charlene lived in the very exclusive country club community of Castlewood in the city of Pleasanton, California. Incorporated in 1894, it is a suburb of San Francisco with a population just over 70,000. In the year prior to our story taking place, it was ranked the wealthiest middle-sized city in the United States in 2014. USA Today named Pleasanton fourth on their list of the 50 best cities in America to live. Money Magazine listed it 63rd on their list of best places to live in 2010. Forbes named it one of America's top hometown spots in the U.S. in 2009. And it was named the third wealthiest city when it came to earnings in the United States in 2013 and 2016. So this city is pretty well-to-do. Charlene had worked for 31 years as an accounting professor and she was a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and very much wanted to instill those values in her children. Ernest made a successful living working in real estate, and he followed that up with dabbling in politics. But he was known to be kind of difficult to work with. For example, while he was on the school board, if everyone voted yay, he would vote nay. Eventually, this habit of always countering everyone also ended up leading him to being voted out of the school board in a recall election. And in the ensuing two decades, he continued holding a grudge and continued to fight the school board at every turn. So the Shearers had plans for a pretty big family vacation with their daughter, Catherine, her husband, and their two children. They were scheduled to fly out to Hawaii on Saturday, March 15, 2008. Traveling was a big thing in the Shearer family. 
but in the week leading up to the day that they were supposed to depart, Catherine had been trying to reach her parents by phone but was unsuccessful. She had been calling several times each day, so she was beginning to worry. She reached out to her brother, and he is Ernest III, so for purposes of keeping it simple, we are going to call him Ernie, and we'll call his dad Ernest. She asked him if he had heard from mom and dad, and he said that he had not heard from either one of them. She finally called the Castlewood Country Club on March 14th, the day before their scheduled trip, to see if she could get some information from them. But upon conducting a wellness check, it was immediately apparent that there was a very strong, distinctive odor of human decomposition. And upon further inspection, a violent and bloody scene was discovered. Turns out the shears had been viciously attacked and murdered inside their home. The scene was brutal. Blood spatter reached the ceilings as the couple had first been bludgeoned and then stabbed in their heads, arms, upper body, their wrists were slit, and the coup de grace, so to speak, were slits to both of their throats. Yeah, this killer wanted to make sure that neither Ernest nor Charlene would survive this. It was evident that the Shearers had been deceased for days, though an exact day could not be determined immediately based on the initial observation of the decomposition. It was estimated at the time to have been anywhere between four days up to as many as 12. Ernest had sustained six blunt force trauma injuries and six incisive or sharp injuries. Charlene, however, suffered much more of an attack than her husband had. While Ernest had only six blunt force trauma injuries to him, Charlene had 20 blunt force trauma injuries to her head and face, along with the cuts to the wrist and neck. Both her carotid and jugular were severed. In contrast to Ernest's six stab wounds, Charlene had 12. So it appeared as though the brunt of the aggression was directed towards Charlene. The forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsies could not determine with any measure of certainty who had been attacked first. One of the first and most important clues discovered at the scene were a set of bloody footprints. They led from the victim's bodies as well as in other areas of the house, including having apparently stopped in front of a hallway linen closet. After investigating the sole pattern, it was determined that the prints were made by a size 12 Nike Impact Tomahawk-style shoe. We will come back and talk more about these shoes a little bit later. The investigators first set out to determine when the shearers were killed. Once they could figure that out, they would be able to begin to put together a timeline of what happened leading up to these events. It was discovered on the front yard that there were two sets of newspapers that had begun to pile up. The local paper dating back to March 9th and the Wall Street Journal dating back to the 8th. So that gave investigators a pretty good starting point. It was noted that daylight savings time was set to begin at 2 a.m. on March 8th, and the shearers' clocks had not been set forward yet. It was also discovered that Ernest had called Catherine 
and left her a voicemail message on March 7th at approximately 7 p.m. And that was the last time she reported hearing from either one of her parents. As I stated earlier, Catherine had made numerous attempts over the next seven days to contact them to no avail. The last known sighting of Ernest and Charlene was at the Country Club restaurant where they had dinner the evening of March 7th. They finished up and departed the restaurant together just before 8 p.m. It is known that Ernest had a phone conversation around 8.30 p.m. with a former congressperson and was supposed to be at a voter registration drive at 8 a.m. the next morning, and Ernest failed to show up for that. So based on all of this information, investigators placed the time of Ernest and Charlene's murders as having taken place sometime between 8.30 p.m. on the night of March 7th into the pre-dawn hours of the 8th. They were wearing their pajamas at the time that they were killed. The front door of the Shearer home was unlocked and it did not appear that there was any indication the home was broken into. There had been some ransacking of the upstairs area of the home, but not downstairs. Ernest's wallet was still in his pants pocket which were upstairs in the bedroom, and it contained $700. Another pocket of his pants contained another $9,000. And the reason he had this $9,000 in his pocket was because he had actually won that money earlier in the day on March 7th at a casino. The $9,000 was literally visibly hanging out of his pants pocket in full view, along with drawers and things pulled out and tossed around. Ernest's wedding band was discovered on the kitchen floor near where his body was located. According to investigators, Ernest fought his attacker so hard that his ring flew off his finger. All of Charlene's jewelry was either on her person or in the master bedroom, and her purse was on the dining room table. So with all of this, investigators came to the conclusion that the ransacking was an attempt at staging the crime to appear to be a burglary, as so much cash and valuables were left untouched. Circling back to the bloody footprints for a moment. In an astute observation made by one of the investigators, it was noted that the footprints appeared to be made in a purposeful way. They were left in a very measured and deliberate manner, not in the way someone would be moving while committing a frantic burglary and double homicide. For some reason, detectives believe that the killer wanted to make sure that the shoe impressions left a very clear and identifiable pattern. They saw this as an attempt to throw off the investigation, but in what way? That was yet to be determined. The first thing that Catherine did when she got the news that her parents were killed was call her brother, Ernie, to let him know that mom and dad were gone and he too was in shock. They've lost both of their parents in such a violent manner. Ten days after the day that investigators believe the Shearers were killed, Catherine, along with the friend of the family, conducted a walkthrough to try and see if they could find anything to be missing from the home. Catherine knew her parents to have collected and stored four traditional ritualistic swords in a closet in the hallway and she indicated that one was missing. She also noted one missing silver napkin ring, 
and two statues from the basement. And both her mom and dad's cell phones were missing as well. Other than those items, it did not appear that anything else had been taken. Four days after that, the shears were laid to rest on March 22, 2008. Ernie was one of the pallbearers, and his wife, Robin, and their young son, Ernie IV, stood amongst the mourners. Remember Robin. She will play an integral role in our story a little bit later on. One of the first places investigators thought to look was the political foes that Ernest had racked up over the years in his battles with the school board. He actually had a meeting scheduled a couple of days following the murders to discuss what he believed to be corruption within the school board. Investigators thought perhaps in all of his squabbling with the school board that he had finally crossed the wrong person. At the same time, Investigators were pretty convinced that the person who did this was intimately familiar with the home and that this person that committed the murders was allowed inside the house by either Ernest or Charlene. So the next place investigators turned was the children, the two people who stood to inherit the family estate, Catherine and Ernie. One of the first things police confiscated from the home was the last will and testament of Ernest and Charlene Shearer. Both children stood to inherit everything once they turned 30 years old, respectively. Catherine was quickly eliminated as a suspect as she was hundreds of miles away at home in Utah, and that was verified. But Ernie's whereabouts was another story. As the investigation wore on, detectives really weren't able to eliminate him as a suspect in this. Of course, when they ran this by Catherine, she could not believe that he could have done something so violent to their own mother and father. They were like, yeah, we ruled out people Ernest had crossed in his political circles. Other people who may have had a bone to pick with him, but everybody has been eliminated except for Ernie. Every time they followed a lead, they ended up right back at him. And Ernie was set to turn 30 years old that July 3rd. It did not take long for Ernie to become the focal point of this murder investigation. Ernie Shearer crisscrossed the United States from city to city competing in professional poker tournaments. And the day after his parents' bodies were discovered, at some point, Ernie had apparently inquired with detectives about his parents' will and if he would be able to see it or get a copy of it, which, of course, immediately drew suspicions. Four days after the shearers were discovered, detectives asked Ernie to come in and answer some questions. They explained that they wanted to be able to rule him out so they could move on in their investigation. He explained that on the evening that police have narrowed down as being the night his parents were murdered, March 7th into the 8th, that he was at home where he lived in the city of Brea, California, which is a town in the northern part of Orange County, nearly 400 miles or 643 kilometers south of the scene of the crime, which is a six to seven hour drive at least. In his interview, Ernie told detectives, it's kind of unrealistic for me to have driven from my house all the way up to their house, killed them, 
ransack the house and drive all the way back. But there was nobody who could corroborate his story that he was at home. His wife of nine years, Robin, just so happened to be away that night visiting her family in Northern California with their son. He was very confident that they would be able to verify his whereabouts as he told them, you'll be able to track me almost all the way to my front door on my cell phone. We will talk more about his cell phone a little bit later as well. Ernie's wife and mother of their son, Robin, was certain that he was innocent and would quickly be cleared. They had been married for quite some time by then, and she knew her husband and supported him 100%. Even when Ernie dropped the bombshell that he wanted to throw caution to the wind and walk away from his budding career in business and become a professional poker player, she supported that. Once he did that, though, their lives were all over the place, like a never-ending cycle of ups and downs. Some days there'd be a big windfall of cash, and others he'd lose every last penny they had and it put a strain on their finances for sure. When Ernie was at the top of his game, he cleared more than $100,000 in a single year. While Ernie was gambling, Robin stayed home with their son, and prior to moving to Brea, they lived in a small apartment in Torrance, California. In the spring of 2007, Ernie won $70,000 at the races at Hollywood Park, and he wanted to use those winnings towards a down payment on a bigger home. And it would be much, much bigger. In the summer of that same year, they found the home that they wanted, a 3,600-square-foot or 334-square-meter home in Brea. The couple were able to scrape together 20% for the down payment, which was $176,000, for the $880,000 home. But even with that down payment, they did not qualify for the home loan. So because of that, Ernie's dad went ahead and agreed to loan his son and daughter-in-law 70% of the cost of the home, a total of $616,000. They put the 20% they had as a down payment and had a second mortgage for the remaining 10%, which was carried by the lending bank. They were able to purchase their dream home in September of 2007. Their monthly mortgage to both lenders totaled $4,436. The terms of the loan was that they would be paying interest only on both of those loans for a period of five years, and then they would owe the principal amount in full to both lenders, both to his parents and the bank. The plan was, before the five years was up, that Ernie and Robin would refinance their house and repay his parents. This sounds like an awful loan for everybody involved, especially considering all of these individuals agreed to these terms, knowing that Ernie's only income is gambling. I even began to question his parents' judgment in agreeing to loan their son this kind of money and having them pay interest only for five years, and then expect them to pay the entire principal amount in under five years' time. I tried to do the math. So the monthly payment Ernie and Robin were making to his parents was $3,850. Let's say they paid on the loan for the entire five years. 
that comes to a total of $231,000 in interest only. Then at the end of the five years, Ernie and Robin have to pay back the whole $616,000. So that means in this five-year period, Ernie and Robin are going to have to come up with a total of $847,000 to pay to his parents on a home that cost $880,000 in 2007. I asked the math question in the Facebook group to get sort of a rudimentary estimate as to the interest rate on such a loan. And the answers were seriously all over the place because so many of us, myself included, are no good at math. But the answer arrived at the most seemed to be about 39%, which is super high for a loan of more than $600,000. And if you remember what happened less than a year later in the United States, the housing market collapsed. So the value of that home probably hit its peak the day they bought it and started plummeting the very next day and every day forward. Everybody was going to start scrambling to get their money out of that house, especially Ernest and Charlene Shearer. They stood to lose the most and they were going to want their money back much sooner than Ernie would be prepared for. I mentioned earlier that the Shearers, particularly Charlene, were pretty devout members of the LDS church. She did not approve of her son's lifestyle or career choice as a professional poker player. And she certainly wasn't too keen on her husband's willingness to loan him money on the chance that he's going to be able to continue to win poker tournaments. And Charlene made no secret of how she felt. And she criticized Ernie constantly and relentlessly about it. It caused the relationship between mother and son to become fractured to the point that they were no longer speaking. Ernie's travels took him to various cities across the country. All the while, Robin stayed home, dutifully caring for Ernie the Fourth. But her husband was by no means remaining faithful to his marriage vows, not in the least. In 2006, he crossed paths with a woman from North Carolina who was on a business trip in Las Vegas, Adrian Solomon. They met while playing craps at the Rio Hotel and Casino. She found him to be charming and attractive, but, you know, that's debatable. And she did say in an interview that she glanced down at his hands to look for a wedding band and he wasn't wearing one, and she was impressed by the fact that he seemed to be a high roller and was treated really well at the tables by the casino floor staff, and he got comps for everything. He was able to bring her along to all of these perks that he received, dinners, shows, all that good stuff. Now, there was more philandering going on with Ernie, but it did seem as though he was semi-serious with Adrian, though how genuine all of this was, I don't know. According to her, they spoke of the potential of a future together. They shopped at Tiffany's for rings. And Ernie even brought up the idea of marriage to Adrienne and her mother. All the while, she had no idea that he already had a wife and child at home in California. As the relationship carried on over time, Adrian began having reservations about Ernie mainly because of the very thing that brought them together, 
gambling. He began making riskier and higher bets, and it just seemed kind of reckless and irresponsible. And she began to question if all of this was going to be worth it. And we will talk more about Adrian a little bit later on also. As the investigation into Ernest and Charlene's murders wore on, they began to think that Ernie's gambling habits were quite troubling, and detectives wanted to know if perhaps financial issues were plaguing him, and could this have been a potential motive for him to have wanted his parents dead. I watched some of the interview that he had with police, and I got this vibe that he was kind of bragging about his gambling exploits. He told him that he was pretty well known in the world of poker, and it was not unusual for him to casually walk around with $10,000 in cash and maybe another $40,000 in chips. Maybe it was bragging or maybe it was to give the investigators the impression that he wasn't hard up for money, so there'd be no real reason for him to want to kill his parents. Financially, he's doing fine and he wanted to portray that. But they actually kind of saw this as the opposite. They felt like the gambling with large sums of money wasn't a sign of financial stability at all. They saw it as risky, unpredictable, and unstable. While talking to Ernie, they just kind of got that negative vibe from him. Detectives were suspicious, but that's all they had was their suspicions. They really didn't have anything to connect him to the crime, yet. A week after detectives first spoke to Ernie about his parents' death, they got a pretty big break in the case. On the grounds of Castlewood, there was a building called the Lower Castlewood Country Club. And perched on the side of this building was, you guessed it, a surveillance camera. It was trained in the direction of a street that led into the community. Based on the time frame that they believed Ernest and Charlene were killed, they narrowed down a window of time to search through the footage. After looking over several hours of recorded surveillance, they hit pay dirt. On the night of the murders, they spotted a red convertible Camaro with a black rag top driving into the country club at 8.27 p.m. The same vehicle was captured by the same camera leaving four hours later. Ernie Shearer drove a red convertible Camaro with the black rag top. With this new information, investigators decided that they needed to speak to Ernie again. But when they went to go look for him, he was gone. According to his wife, Robin, at some point, Ernie told her that he needed some time to himself to think and to grieve. She asked him when he was coming back and he told her that he wasn't sure that he would get in touch with her eventually. Where he was going, he wouldn't say. But instead of taking his own car, he took his dad's. Why he did that could only really be speculated at this point. Maybe he thought they put a GPS on his vehicle or something like that. He didn't want to be tracked. But as it would turn out, it seemed as though he had a plan for his dad's car. He asked his aunt, his dad's sister, and also the executor of the estate if he could take it, and she agreed, but made him sign a promissory note. 
Ernie ended up selling his dad's car to gather up some money to bring with him while he was on the road. So investigators took the opportunity to seize his vehicle and search it. But of course, Ernie had the whole vehicle detailed inside and out, which cost $140. And the strangest thing of all, when detectives went to speak to the car wash attendants, they clearly remember Ernie because when he sent his car through the car wash, he actually followed the car in, walking behind it through the car wash tunnel. Why he did that and how he was allowed to do that? Your guess is as good as mine. But it is one of the oddest details I've ever heard. And when this car wash and detail work was finished, there was not a trace of evidence to be found anywhere in or on Ernie's Camaro. So with Ernie gone and his car all but wiped of any incriminating evidence, if there was any to be had, the only place investigators had to go was to look back over the photos of the crime scene itself. They first turned to the pictures of the shoe prints left behind at the scene. Okay, so they're obviously focusing in on Ernie, right? They've noticed that he's made determined efforts in several aspects of the case to make sure that there would be no evidence to point to him as the perpetrator of this crime. One, he made sure he cleaned his vehicle inside and out, so if he got any blood or fibers on anything that could have tied him to the scene, it would be washed and vacuumed away. Two, he made sure his cell phone would be only tracked close to his home hundreds of miles away in Brea, California. And three, he made sure to let it be known that there was no motive, financial or otherwise, for him to have committed such a crime against his own mother and father. But the killer did one thing that detectives were certain was deliberate. He made sure the footprints that he left behind at the scene would be clear enough to identify brand, style, and size. These footprints were created in a manner indicative of the person leaving them is doing so in an unhurried manner. They were not left by someone running or fighting, beating, stabbing, killing, struggling, or anything of the sort. To investigators, this meant the killer wanted to make sure that this footprint evidence would be very easy to process. They were a size 12 Nike Impact Tomahawk shoe. Well, as it were, Ernie Shearer wore a size 10. So, this is either one of two things. Either Ernie is not the killer because the shoe doesn't fit, or this is a red herring an effort on Ernie's part to mislead the investigation. It's not hard to get shoes two sizes too big and make it appear it could not have been he who did this. Ernie Shearer just thought that he was so clever, didn't he? And there was another aspect of the bloody footprints that investigators found to be interesting. The footprints left at the scene led away from the place where Charlene's body lay and went towards Ernest. And from Ernest, they went to a hallway linen closet. So it left the detectives asking themselves, what is it that this killer walked over to the linen closet for? They weren't sure. They needed to do more digging to see exactly what this meant. But they were fairly certain that this meant someone was aware of something or interested in something that was kept in there. 
and this was the very closet where Ernest Shearer kept his prized sword collection. The only people who knew those swords were in there were family members. Ernie's wife Robin did state in an interview that once investigators were finished processing the crime scene for evidence and family was allowed back in the home, she accompanied Ernie when he traveled to visit. When they got there, the first place Ernie led her to was directly to that very closet. She stated in her interview, He reaches in. He pulls out a sword. He takes the sheath off the sword. He's looking at it and he says, Isn't this a beautiful sword? And he's putting it back in the closet. And under his breath he says, I wonder where the second one went. This feeling of dread came over her. She knew. And I told you, both parents were not only beaten, they were slashed up too. When he handled that sword and said what he said, it was in that moment that she believed Ernie had a hand in this killing somehow. She contacted police and told them about the chilling conversation with the sword in the hallway. Ernie Shearer quickly became the prime suspect. But at that point in the investigation, they still didn't have any kind of hard evidence that would hold up in court. This was all circumstantial. Damning as it may be, it was still flimsy. So for the time being, they just needed to keep an eye on Ernie while they continued to put the pieces of this puzzle together. And Ernie, while trying to keep one step ahead of the investigation, was apparently bouncing around the United States. Doing what, you ask? Well, probably gambling, but he also had a very active presence on Craigslist. What was he doing on Craigslist? Well, looking for women. Grieving? Yeah, right. He had personal ads across the country. I found an image of one of his ads online. It was posted on June tenth, two 2008 in Las Vegas. The headline read, Good People Equals Fun Times. 29 Las Vegas. The body of the ad read, I'm six feet tall, and that's 1.83 meters, a non smoker. I'm really just looking for someone that's intelligent and can hold an interesting conversation over a glass of wine. Maybe you live here, or maybe you're from out of town for a convention. We can get together for drinks and listen to some live music. If we hit it off, maybe we can have dinner. I know Las Vegas, and I have lots of great places to go and things to do. And then he posted two pictures of himself. And he's kind of, meh, I'm not impressed. And I kind of sort of feel like slapping that stupid goatee off his face, to be honest. Anyway, in his cross-country extramarital dating spree, he was meeting women and giving fake names telling people that he was a writer working on a novel about a poker player in Vegas whose parents were tragically murdered and he decided to hit the road and go on the run because he became a suspect. On the day his parents were found murdered, he actually had a date planned with a woman named Pamela that he met on Craigslist in Las Vegas. They had already gone out twice before, so when she received the call and he told her the news, 
she was quite shocked because he seemed sort of casual about it. And they really barely knew each other. And when the investigation looked a little closer at Ernie's cell phone records, they discovered that this guy actually told this woman who he had gone out with on two dates that his parents were murdered before he actually told his own wife of nine years. What does that tell you about this guy? That he's preoccupied with this date? That he needed to work up to telling his wife? Maybe he needed to say the words out loud to a stranger before telling her? Because the conversation was definitely going to bring about way more questions and way more emotions? Who knows, but everything about this guy is weird. And as all of this going on in Ernie's background is being uncovered as a result of the investigation, this information is slowly being funneled to his wife, Robin. And information about Robin is slowly being funneled to all of Ernie's girlfriends as well. All of his dirty little secrets are becoming exposed. Robin was finding out about these clandestine relationships that he had from city to city. She found out that he had credit cards and post office boxes that she had no idea existed. It was certainly a lot to take in, all at once, no doubt. But what do you do when you find out your husband isn't the person that you thought you knew and that he's this lying, cheating SOB and now he's become the prime suspect in a murder? Well, what can you do? Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can become an honorary detective and join forces with the investigation into your scumbag husband. That's what you do. And that is exactly what Robin did. The investigation undoubtedly was dragging on as they were having a heck of a time linking Ernie to the crime with some irrefutable physical evidence. But once all this nonsense about him came to light, Robin was totally on board with doing anything she could to help the investigation along. One of the big concerns for investigators was what Ernie might do next. I mean, they suspect he killed his own parents, right? In such a brutal and violent manner. So what else is this guy capable of and whose safety is in jeopardy at this point? His sister? Her family? Even his own wife? So about three months after he said that he was going to grieve across the United States, investigators managed to track him down in Las Vegas. And while they were there, they were able to surreptitiously place a tracking device on his car so they could track his movements. They were worried that he might try to harm his sister as he was going to be made to split the family inheritance right down the middle with her. With Catherine out of the way, he could double his take, right? So with a GPS on his car, any time that he got close to her home in Utah, they would be able to let her know and she could take appropriate measures to protect herself and her family. And the same went for Robin back in California. And on top of tracking his locations, they managed to sort through his financial situation as well, so they could assemble the evidence of the motive behind this crime. They found out that not only was Ernie completely topped out, he was drowning in debt. In the time leading up to the Shearer's murders, Ernie and Robin were completely broke. Their biggest debt, of course, was to his parents. They had to pay them $3,850 a month for that loan to buy their Brea home, and they simply weren't making it. And remember, I told you, 2008 marked the onset of the housing market collapse here in the United States. 
Our country was going into a recession, and the sharers began demanding the $600,000 plus back that they had loaned their son and daughter-in-law. And now, to be honest, just speaking from the viewpoint of someone whose parents also have a lot of money, but me, meh, not so much, I don't really think that his parents were all that in touch with what was going on when it came to their son and money. I mean, I never, ever borrowed anywhere near that large sum of money from my mom and dad, nor do I even think that they would really lend it to me to begin with. But it is kind of unrealistic of them to start demanding $600,000 just like right now, give me back all this money, especially if they knew the money was sunk into real estate. Where in the world did they think Ernie and Robin were going to come up with that kind of cash to hand over? Sell the house? Okay, but if the value of the home is plummeting because of the economic downturn, there's still no way they'd be able to come up with the whole amount. The only thing I could think of is that Ernie was lying to them about how much money he was winning. Maybe they thought that the couple had some stashed away in savings. I don't know. But I can imagine the pressure that his parents, especially his mom, were putting on him. On some level, it's kind of relatable. And I think Ernie had his back pushed up against the wall. With this pressure building, it is believed that Ernie began trying to figure out a quick and easy way out of this predicament. And detectives believe the easiest and quickest way was an option that would be high risk and high reward. Murder his parents. He wasn't getting along with them anyway. He took particular issue with his mother. And with them gone, he'd have access to his inheritance. Easy peasy, so first things first, obtain a gun. On March 6, 2008, Ernie went to the Master at Arms gun shop located in Pahrump, Nevada, which is located along the 15 as you're headed south out of Vegas towards the California border. Accompanying him was a friend named Bill Krause. The gun dealer remembered them well because they both kind of acted weird. At the time, and it is still the same now, as Nevada gun laws are written, Billy, being the resident of the state, would be able to purchase the gun and gain possession of it the same day of purchase. In California, state law has imposed a 10-day waiting period between the purchase of the gun and when you can actually have it. Ernie told Bill that he needed the gun because, as a gambler, he carried around a lot of money and he needed it for protection. The gun dealer informed Bill, you know, it's illegal to purchase a gun for someone who is not a resident of the state of Nevada. Once Bill found that out, he backed out of the deal. He was not interested in getting in any kind of trouble. He knew that if Ernie did something, even if he used the gun for what he said it was intended for personal protection, what if Ernie shot and killed somebody? That gun was going to be traced straight back to Bill, and he was not going to go down like that. He didn't purchase the gun for Ernie, so Ernie would have to resort to Plan B. The day after the gun purchase fail, Ernie got into his red convertible Camaro 
and began heading out of Las Vegas towards California. Based on his credit card receipts, he stopped in Prim, Nevada, which is a little border town you pass through right before you cross into California. He purchased gas and he purchased food at McDonald's. And not too long after that, Ernie's phone and his credit cards went radio silent and they would remain silent for the next 17 and a half hours. And the timeline investigators put together fits just about perfectly. He left the California-Nevada border in the early afternoon of March 7th, and it was shortly after that that his phone went dark. He arrived in Pleasanton, California just after 8 p.m., pretty much the exact time that Ernie himself told detectives that it would take for him to drive there. While not exactly the same distance from Prim, Nevada when heading north and south up and down California as it would be from his home in Brea, the travel time would be relatively close in duration. And they knew when he got to the country club because his car was captured on surveillance video arriving there. At 12.42 a.m. on March 8th, Ernie's vehicle again passed by the same surveillance camera as he left his parents' house. And then... Almost six hours later, Ernie's cell phone came back to life at 6.36 a.m., 390 miles or 627 kilometers away, back at his home in Brea. Investigators set out to time the drive themselves. They left the country club at 12.42 a.m., and they made it back to Ernie's house in Brea at the exact same minute on the dot that Ernie's phone came back on, 6.36 a.m. But the only way detectives could really prove that it was actually Ernie's car seen coming and going from his parents' house was if they could get him to admit that it was his. How exactly were they going to do that? Well, enter scorned wife Robin Shearer. They contacted her and asked her if she would be willing to try and speak to Ernie in a phone call that they would be recording. They gave her some information they wanted her to share with him so they could gauge his response. When he called, they had a little bit of small talk. She asked him where he was and he told her Northern California, but made sure to let her know that he wasn't trying to hide or anything. And she was like, well, they do think you're trying to hide. He told her that police have got all the circumstantial stuff that they're trying to point to him as a suspect and they really have nothing. And then she came with this. She told him that police have this video and it looked like his car with him in it and that he's in the car. And he cut her off and said, you can see the face of the driver? She said, yes, were you there? Because they have this video and it clearly looks like your car. Were you there? because I thought you were driving back home and there's this video that they have and it clearly looks like it's your car. Ernie went silent. She said, hello. He said, I'm here. I'm just thinking. That pretty much convinced everyone, detectives and Robin, that Ernie was the killer. They went ahead and finally arrested Ernie on February 23rd, 2009 even though the evidence was all circumstantial. To them, the totality of it all brought them back to Ernie every single time that they tried to rule him out. 
And as for Ernie's part, he was certain that he would be exonerated, even telling the prosecutor he'd be home in time for the holidays. His attorney not only pointed to the circumstantial evidence as meaningless, he pointed out that there was foreign unknown DNA mixed in with the blood at the scene. But that did not concern prosecutors whatsoever. The DNA could have come from anywhere and left by anyone who had been in the Shearer home prior to the murders. But you know, there's always this concern. What if it wasn't enough? What if the jury didn't see what they saw? Was there something that they overlooked that they could definitively tie Ernie to this crime with? Investigators made one last-ditch effort to pour over the crime scene photos one more time to see if there was anything at all that they happened to miss. In looking at the photographs of the crime scene, they suddenly spotted something on the floor, a small piece of paper. It was lying next to a black attache or maybe a laptop bag, something like that. On the piece of paper and on the floor around it, there were blood droplets, perhaps some medium velocity splatter. On one side of it, it said, Nike goes to bat for college baseball's best. And it had some prominent university logos on it. On the other side was the outline of the details of the warranty on a Nike youth baseball bat. Up until that moment, investigators had no idea what the murder weapon was, what item was used to beat the shearers. And there it was. What reason would Ernest and Charlene, ages 60 and 57 respectively, be doing with a youth baseball bat in their home? Well, they didn't have one. No such item was found. Only this warranty card. This card was curved, which meant the bat was wrapped, likely in cellophane or shrink-wrapped, and the warranty card was attached to the barrel of the bat. And when it was removed, or it came off, it retained its curved shape and got splashed with the victim's blood. Investigators put it together pretty quickly. This was the murder weapon, and it was purchased, brand new, warranty card still attached, with the sole purpose of being used to beat the sharers to death with. Finally, while they didn't have the actual murder weapon... They had their murder weapon. So now, they needed to link this baseball bat to Ernie Shearer. They knew based on their investigation the day before he drove to Nevada to Pleasanton, California, that Ernie had attempted to have his friend purchase that gun in Pahrump, Nevada. What this told investigators was Ernie did not yet have a murder weapon in his hands when he set off on his journey to his parents' house that day. So they traced his movements as best they could from where Ernie's alibi had commenced. That early afternoon, when he had stopped at the border town of Prim before crossing into California. Remember, he purchased gas with his credit card at a Chevron and then purchased some food with his credit card at McDonald's. And I told you about the outlet mall located in the same parking lot as those two places. Well, as it were... There just so happens to be a Nike factory outlet store inside that mall. 
I went by that store late last year and shared a picture of it with the Facebook group. And I told you it involved a California crime. Well, here we are. This Nike outlet is just a short walking distance directly across the parking lot from McDonald's. Investigators were able to go back in time and take a look at the register receipts from that day. March 7th, 2008, at 11.38 a.m., there was a cash transaction made. The individual purchased a 2006 Ripken Youth baseball bat for $24.49, a pair of youth soccer goalie gloves for $9.99, and a pair of size 12 Nike Impact Tomahawk shoes for $49.99. The detective described these items as the perfect murder kit. And what this meant for Ernie Shearer? Well, this was still within the scope of circumstantial, but it went far beyond what anyone would be able to explain away as mere coincidence. Ernie Shearer III would stand trial for the murders of his parents. His trial began November 1st, 2010. He was portrayed by the prosecution as a man who lived a lifestyle that conflicted with the values his mother had wanted to instill in her children as a devout Mormon, namely the gambling. It is not certain as to whether or not she was aware of the numerous extramarital affairs that Ernie was involved in, because the fact is his so-called work in professional gambling required extensive traveling and time away from home and family. Ernie was described as a man who preferred living a life in the fast lane with his gambling and his womanizing. I mentioned earlier that he was involved with a woman named Adrian Solomon. He kept up their relationship for almost two years from April of 2006 through February of 2008. She maintained her residence in North Carolina, but she and Ernie would coordinate their schedules, his gambling jaunts with her business trips, meeting up in various locations including California, Texas, Louisiana, Nevada, Aruba, and Puerto Rico. Ernie had spent New Year's Eve of both 2006 into 2007 and 2007 into 2008 with Adrian in Las Vegas. All the while, he was keeping his wife and son at home a secret. People who knew Ernie in Vegas, which is the place he frequented the most, have all said that they had no idea that he was married and that they knew him to have been involved with at least a dozen or more different women, including Adrian, over the course of the three years that he was professionally gambling. Ernie and Robin purchased the Brea home in September of 2007 with that substantial loan from his parents that I talked about earlier. But within a short amount of time, Ernie's luck at the poker table appeared to wane. Friends began to notice that he was actually losing more than he was winning, and he began borrowing money from friends in order to continue gambling on their dime into the tens of thousands of dollars. They felt as though Ernie was becoming overly consumed with all of the women that he was juggling and that he was playing craps more than he was concentrating on poker. And he simply wasn't focused anymore. And it was showing. 
According to court documents, towards the beginning of 2008, Ernie and Robin began looking into refinancing their home. Mind you, this is only three or four months after purchasing it. They were going to try to get his parents' money out of the house. So one of Ernie's gambling associates, who also happened to be a mortgage broker, attempted to help them find a lender to finance them. But at the time, lenders were beginning to withdraw stated income loans from the market, and he was unable to find an institution that would approve that size of a loan for Ernie and Robin, as Ernie was unable to provide documentation that reflected adequate income from gambling. Well, Ernie's associate, who also had business dealings with Ernie's dad, went and told him about his son's financial predicament, and this made Ernie very upset as he certainly didn't want his dad to know anything about his personal finances, especially since he had owed so much money. So the arrangement between Ernie and Robin was essentially this. He traveled, gambled, and provided her with money to pay the monthly bills. But within five months of purchasing the home in February of 2008, this would mark the first time that Ernie was unable to provide Robin with the money to pay their bills. They were also behind on their property taxes, which had been due in December of 2007, along with penalties and fees totaling $6,210. They had until April 10th of 2008 to pay that as well. Towards the end of February of 2008 is when Ernie and Robin found a mortgage broker and applied for that refi on their home. Ernie was hoping to be able to take $180,000 out in equity, but their broker didn't think that they'd be able to get any more than 150000 Not only that, the home value had dropped from 880000 to 850000 And on top of that, the couple's credit rating was also taking a nosedive. On March 4, 2008, three days before the Shearers were murdered, their mortgage broker called them and told them that they did not qualify for the loan. In the meantime, Ernie began raising his betting stakes, including placing large bets on sporting events in order to win quick and big. According to court testimony, friends of Ernie stated that he began asking around about helping him purchase a gun. As I had explained, Nevada laws are more lax and there is no waiting period. He said that he needed a gun for protection because he usually carried around large sums of money and was concerned that if anyone were to be watching him while he was gambling in a casino and happened to take notice of his winnings, that there might be an attempt made to rob him as he left. Ernie's internet searches revealed that going back to as early as February 14th, he was looking for places to buy guns near Prim, Nevada, or even in Baker, California, which is the first small town you pass as you're headed west towards the Los Angeles, Orange County metropolitan area from Las Vegas. It was also around this time Ernie and Adrian had ended their relationship. On March 4th, after he had received a call that he did not qualify for the refinance loan, he approached a friend and asked him if he would be willing to help him out with something slightly illegal in purchasing him a gun, even offering to pay his friend, but the friend turned him down. And I've already told you about Ernie and his friend Bill Krause having gone to that gun shop in Pahrump on March 6th, on the day before the murders, and that friend ended up refusing to help Ernie out as well after he found out from the gun shop owner that buying a gun for an out-of-state resident was illegal. 
Bill Krause testified that on the drive back to Vegas from Pahrump, Ernie barely uttered a word to him, upset that he was unable to get him to purchase a gun. That same day, Ernie withdrew $500 from his joint account with Robin. The following day, on March 7th, Ernie called his gambling associate and told him that he was going to place their Sunday bets that day, which was a Friday, because he was going to be unavailable by phone for the next 24 hours, the time frame during which Ernie would power down his cell phone. On the morning of March 7, 2008, at 10.45 a.m., Ernie withdrew another $500 from his joint account with Robin. At 12.08 p.m., Ernie used his credit card at that McDonald's in Prim, Nevada. And 13 minutes later, at 12.21 p.m., he used the same credit card to purchase gas at the Chevron across the way in the same parking lot. Now let's talk about that purchase over at the Nike factory outlet mall across the parking lot from McDonald's. If you recall, I mentioned earlier that purchase was made at 11.38 a.m. The bat the Nike shoes, and the soccer goalie gloves. So the prosecution believed that when Ernie arrived in Prem, his first stop was at the Nike outlet to purchase those items, the so-called murder kit. And when he did so, he used cash so that the purchase could not be tied to him or linked to his credit card. But at the same time, in order to establish his alibi, he made purchases at McDonald's and Chevron to ensure his presence in Pram was traceable and documented. He likely never thought in a million years that innocuous purchase at the Nike factory outlet would ever be tied back to him. And it may not have. Investigators may have never known what the murder weapon was, if not for that darned warranty card splattered in his parents' blood. The forensic pathologist would testify at Ernie's trial that the blunt force trauma injuries to Ernest and Charlene could have been inflicted by a baseball bat, and the incised wounds could have been caused by a sword. And the warranty card found at the scene suggested that the bat was a recently purchased item. Also, when looking at Ernie's cell phone records, it was determined that he was in Prim for approximately 1 hour and 25 minutes, much more time than he would have needed to purchase gas and a Happy Meal. Their investigation into Ernie revealed that he often stopped in Prim on his way back and forth from Vegas to Brea. And every other time that he stopped there, his cell phone records indicated that he would be in and out of Prim in under 30 minutes, except for this one time. At 12.27 p.m., Ernie made a phone call to Robin. She was visiting her parents' home in Fair Oaks, California, he told her that he was leaving Las Vegas and heading home to Brea. He called Robin again 23 minutes later at 12.50 p.m. This call indicated that Ernie was traveling somewhere in a southwesterly direction, as this 12.50 call had bounced off a cell tower in Baker, California. This was consistent with traveling along Interstate 15, headed towards Los Angeles and Orange Counties. But once a person traveling this route reaches Barstow, California, which is loosely considered to be the halfway point between L.A. and Las Vegas, there is a junction that one could take to begin heading west towards Interstate 5, and that will take you all the way up to Northern California, 
specifically Pleasanton, where Ernie's parents resided. Or you can continue on the 15 headed southwest with a couple more freeway changes once you make it over the Cajon Pass, hop on the 57 south and head directly into Brea, where Ernie and Robin reside. Ernie insisted he continued on the 15 south. Prosecutors insisted he headed north. After Robin last spoke to Ernie on that 12.50 phone call, she took a look at their bank records online and noticed two $500 withdrawals that he had made. She attempted to call him back, but his phone went directly to voicemail. For the rest of that day and into the evening, Robin made numerous attempts to call and text Ernie with no response. She also called the landline at their home in Brea and still... No answers there either. In one of Robin's text messages, she asked him why his phone was turned off at 6 p.m. This was something that he never did. And it would not be until 6.30 a.m. the following morning on March 8, 2008, that Ernie would finally text Robin back, at which time he stated he was feeling well-rested and he was getting ready to go play bridge with his grandpa. A cell phone expert from Ernie's provider was called to testify. The expert was able to trace Ernie's phone connection to towers heading south from Las Vegas to Prim to Baker. The last connection made was the 12.50 p.m. call that he made to Robin. After that, Ernie's phone stopped connecting to any towers anywhere. This meant his phone was either off or the battery had died. The phone finally came back to life the following morning of March 8th. Ernie texted Robin, and then he made a phone call at 6.36 a.m. to his grandpa, Ernie the First, and that call, as it were, connected to a tower in Brea. In total, Ernie's phone did not connect to any network tower for 17 hours and 46 minutes. The investigation revealed that this was an anomaly in Ernie's cell phone usage patterns. He, for the most part, used his phone incessantly without any gaps anywhere nearly as long as this. The Orange County Sheriff's Department had one of their deputies drive from Prim, Nevada to Brea, California. Along the route most likely traveled, and it took 3 hours and 26 minutes, far less than Ernie's 17 plus unaccounted for hours. Ernie arrived at his grandpa's house in Laguna Niguel, California, just after 7 a.m. on March 8th, as they had plans to participate in a bridge tournament. The tournament lasted until sometime between 4 and 5 p.m. that afternoon, and by all accounts, Ernie appeared to be feeling and acting normally. To the court and the jury, the prosecution laid out their theory. Ernie drove from Vegas to Prim. He purchased the murder kit using cash as to not be traced, shoes that were two sizes too big, and then made two more purchases using his credit cards to establish his presence in Prim at the time. Once he got to Baker, he powered off his phone. Once he got to Barstow, he headed north towards Pleasanton instead of south towards Brea. Surveillance cameras at the Castlewood Country Club captured a vehicle that looked like his going into his parents' community a little before 8.30 p.m., then leaving the community four hours later. 
In that four-hour window of time, according to prosecutors, Ernie attacked his parents with the bat, and then he slashed their wrists and necks with a sword from the linen closet, making sure to leave clear footprints with those ill-fitting shoes. He then drove home to Brea, powered his phone back up, texted Robin, called Grandpa, and headed off to the bridge tournament. All cool as a cucumber. So what about that Camaro? I mean, Ernie III isn't the only person in California that drives a red Chevy Camaro with the black rag top, right? What are the chances that this dark, somewhat grainy footage of this Camaro going into the Castlewood Country Club is his? Well, the prosecution called an expert to look over the video. This expert was able to determine without a doubt that the vehicle captured on surveillance was a fourth-generation Camaro manufactured between 1993 and 2002. There were a total of 8,281 red Camaros like Ernie's manufactured in the United States between 1998 and 2002. According to the investigation into the California Department of Motor Vehicles records, there were 960 2001 Camaro convertibles registered in California, the model year of Ernie's car. There were 28 2001 Camaros registered in Alameda County, the county in which Ernie's parents resided. In the adjoining counties, there were 75 2001 Camaros, though knowing the color of each one was impossible. There was only one Camaro registered in Pleasanton, but it was a goldish color. There were 13 more 2001 Camaros registered in cities adjacent to Pleasanton, but the colors of each of those could not be determined either. Circumstantial? Yeah. But is it beyond the scope of what one may consider to be coincidental? Well, considering all the other things, it's getting there. Either that, or Ernie III is quite the unlucky fella. The Camaro expert testified that he came to the determination based on his examination of Ernie's Camaro, which was in police impound, that the Camaro on the surveillance and his were one and the same. He came to this conclusion because the wheels on the headlights were custom aftermarket, though the prosecution expert on the video enhancement did concede that it was not possible to say with 100% certainty that the Camaro is Ernie's because of the video quality, but did note the similarities in shape, features, body design, and color tone that it was most likely Ernie's. According to courtroom testimony, two detectives using one driver drove the route that they believed Ernie traveled from Prim to Pleasanton, going an average speed of 67.3 miles per hour or 108.31 kilometers per hour. They left Prim at 12.09 p.m. and arrived at Ernest and Charlene's home at 7.42 p.m., a total of 7 hours and 33 minutes. Then, with the same driver, they drove from there to Brea, going an average speed of 67.4 miles or 108.47 kilometers per hour, leaving at 12.42 a.m., the time that Ernie's Camaro was seen leaving Castlewood Country Club. They arrived in Brea at 6.36 a.m., literally the exact time Ernie's phone was powered back on 
according to cell phone tower network connection records. And by the way, they used the one driver to prove that it was physically possible to make that drive in that amount of time with little or no sleep. Now, granted, the driver didn't murder two people in between, so there's that to consider. On March 24, 2008, Ernie Shearer III disappeared. Though his wife, Robin, did communicate with him on occasion by phone and email, she would not see him again after March 23, 2008 until she came to testify at his trial almost three years later. At trial, she described how they went into financial dire straits. By March of 2008, their bank accounts had been depleted. The bank had shut down their accounts by April 4, 2008, Robin sent Ernie an email at the end of May of 2008 to inform him that their home was in foreclosure. They owed $2,743 on the second mortgage and needed another $10,555 by June 15th to avoid more penalties. The bank seized the home and scheduled it for auction that August. Robin attempted to get Ernie to pay the balance of what they owed, or to put the house up for sale so they could retain some of the equity. By this time, Robin was relying on government assistance and food benefits. She also began working part-time. Ernie's time on the run lasted for 11 months, and it was during this time that he was placing all of those Craigslist ads seeking women, which I read you a sample of previously. These ads were found in Connecticut, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Minnesota, New York, Nevada, Louisiana, and Tennessee. He was finally arrested in Las Vegas in February of 2009, and by that time, Robin was cooperating with police, at which time she had made that recorded phone call, telling him that his face was visible in the surveillance video at Castlewood Country Club. She eventually filed for divorce, and that was finalized in June of 2010. Now, the prosecution had no physical or forensic evidence that definitively linked Ernie to the crime scene. DNA found at the scene only came back to the victims with some samples being attributed to both Catherine and Ernie, but that was easily attributed to the fact that they both had visited the house on numerous occasions. Other DNA samples were present, but they were too small or degraded to develop a useful profile. The prosecution expert testified that the DNA could have been left there any time previously by anyone who had come into the home or coughed or sneezed. It could have been brought in by a cat who was walking around the crime scene at the time the victims were discovered, or it could have been attributed to a member of law enforcement or first responders, tracked in on their shoes. Whatever the case, there were tiny DNA samples that remained unidentified. Ernie's attorney argued that unknown DNA pointed to an unknown killer. The prosecution hammered home the circumstantial evidence, and they were adamant that this was demonstrative of Ernie Shearer's guilt. He had a lifestyle that he could not afford. He was in a desperate financial situation, with his parents coming down on him hard about the gambling and the amount of money that he owed them. And they've laid out a plot for murder that Ernie Shearer planned out well or at least he thought he planned it well. 
Following the crimes, he was reported to have known details that had not been disclosed by anyone at the sheriff's office. And his behaviors, his absconding, his inappropriate actions, all of this was indicative of guilt. And then there was the following testimony of people in both Ernest II and Ernest III's family, friends, and associates. Ernie I testified that his son, the second, told him late in 2007 that Ernie III's gambling habits were becoming reckless and compulsive and he could not be trusted with money. Ernie I has a housemate named Sinhild McMillan. She testified as to a conversation that she had with Ernie III. She had shared with him her stock portfolio and Ernie expressed the fact that it was impressive. She said that it had taken her a lifetime to build a portfolio like that, but he seemed like the type of person who wanted it next week. His response to her was, you've got that right. The investigation revealed that Ernie II had been trying to see Ernie III prior to his death, but it appeared as though Ernie III was dodging him. Ernest II visited Ernie III at his wife's home in Brea on either February 20th or 21st, but Ernie told his dad that he was going to Las Vegas. Instead, he stayed at a hotel and casino in Commerce, California, which is down here in Southern California, and he stayed there with none other than Adrian Solomon. They had checked out of the hotel on the 22nd and drove to Las Vegas, at which time they apparently amicably split. Two days later, an exasperated Ernest II told Robin that he was going to go to Las Vegas and find his son, but he didn't really explain to her why. Ernest II and Ernie III ended up meeting in Las Vegas, and they drove back to Brea together. Robin asked her husband what was so urgent, why his dad needed to speak to him, but he simply told her that they were catching up since his parents had been on vacation. There were three internet searches made by Ernie III in February with the question, what foreign countries have non-extradition? When Ernie arrived at his grandpa's house on March 8th for that bridge tournament, his housemate, Sinhild McMillan, noted that Ernie appeared to be tired and disheveled and agitated, making unusual outbursts at the TV. The following day, on March 9th, 2008, Ernie had his Camaro detailed inside and out, though he previously never really had been all that concerned about the condition of his vehicle. And remember, I mentioned before that he followed his car through the washing tunnel on foot. He was told that he was not allowed to do that, but he did it anyway. And never before or ever since had any customer ever insisted or wanted to do something like that. That same day, Ernie also purchased four new tires for the Camaro. On March 9th, his odometer indicated that he had driven 2,647 miles or 4,259 kilometers since the previous odometer reading, which was approximately three weeks earlier. On the 14th of March, the day his parents' bodies were discovered, Ernie related to some friends that his parents' house had been burglarized. But this was before investigators made any determination that there had been any kind of burglary. Catherine, his sister, was the one who called him and told him about their parents, and she was not told that this was any kind of burglary or break-in either. 
And after Ernie was told of his parents' death, he contacted a bookie to whom he was indebted approximately $31,500 and that he had good news and bad news. The good news was that he was going to be able to pay him back soon. But the bad news was his parents were murdered. His affect was notably flat. When the family began arriving in Pleasanton on March 15th, the day after the discovery of the bodies, everyone, Robin, Ernie the Fourth, her sister-in-law, Catherine, her husband, and her children, all stayed at the home of Alameda County Superior Court Judge Joseph Hurley and his wife, as they were close friends of the decedents. But Ernie the Third opted not to stay there crashing at a friend's bachelor pad instead. That same day, the 15th, Ernie began making a concerted effort to gain access to his parents' home so he could obtain their will, and he attempted to gain access to his parents' safe deposit box, going so far as to asking Judge Hurley for his help in doing so. On March 17th, Ernie told Robin to delete the text messages that she had been sending him during that 17-plus hours that he was out of touch between March 7th and March 8th, and she did. The following day, Adrian Solomon arrived in San Francisco on business. Ernie took her out to dinner, which cost $445, for which he paid with a credit card that he kept secret from his wife. He wanted to go back to her hotel room, but she turned him down. He had still not revealed to her that he was married. The funeral for the Shearers was held on March 22, 2008. The same day, Ernie's Camaro was taken into evidence, though it had been fully detailed inside and out. A search of the vehicle turned up a map of the United States, his passport, a letter from LendingTree, a knife, a pair of Speedo shoes, two pairs of golf shoes, a golf bag that held golf clubs, and two sex toys. The next day was Easter Sunday, March 23rd. That was the day that Ernie told Robin that he had to go away for a while. The following day, Ernie stopped at the Commerce Casino and asked one of the floor managers if he could borrow $10,000. He explained that he had just paid for both of his parents' funerals and he promised he would pay it back, that he was about to inherit more than a million dollars. The casino manager gave Ernie $5,000 in chips which Ernie cashed in and left the casino. He proceeded to take $2,000 out from his joint account with Robin, at which point he began driving towards Dallas, Texas, where Adrian was on a business trip. She told him he was making himself look bad by running like this, but also told him that he was welcome to visit her, but he had to get his own hotel. In the meantime, detectives had found out about Ernie's affair with Adrian and they had contacted her, and this is when she learned that Ernie, this whole time, had been married with child. While he was driving to Dallas, Adrian confronted him with this information, but he made up all these excuses about it. That yeah, he was married, but it was just a formality or something stupid like that. He told her that he stood to inherit $3 million and he promised he would pay off her car loan. He stayed in Dallas until March 27th in his own hotel room after which time he left and headed towards Las Vegas again. On March 25th, Ernie spoke to his aunt, his father's sister who was the executor of her brother's estate. He told her that he was going into hiding. 
She had given Ernie $5,000 in order to retain an attorney. But if he was going to go on the run, she was no longer going to keep the retainer. He told his aunt that he would head back home to be with Robin, but two days later he said that he wouldn't be able to do that because police were questioning neighbors in the Castlewood Country Club, asking if they remembered seeing a red Camaro on the evening of the murders. His aunt told him that if he ran, it was only going to make him appear guilty. On March 26th, she got the retainer back from the attorney that she had hired for him. It was not long after that, people who associated with Ernie, those who gambled with him, those he owed money to, people who were his friends, they all began distancing themselves from him. He asked those to whom he owed debts to please not mention that he owed money to them, but they explained that they would not lie for him. Close friends from Vegas suddenly found out that he had a wife and child. All the while, he had been dating numerous women. They were shocked, disgusted, and hurt by the whole idea of it. Ernie was saying strange and incriminating things to people. Things like his mother went quickly, but his dad put up a fight. And then on April 11th, Ernie's wife, Robin, agreed to begin cooperating with the investigation and eventually made that phone call where she led him to believe that his actual image was captured on video surveillance that I had talked about earlier. Though he responded with silence, he did tell her that he was concerned that police were listening in on their phone calls and he did not want to talk about that anymore over the phone. She also told him that she had consulted a divorce attorney, at which point he asked her to stay married to him so she would not be compelled to testify against him. He tried to do some damage control. He tried to apologize and expressed his remorse for the life that he had been living and wanted to try to work things out with her so he can come back home to her and Ernie the Fourth. She told him that she needed time. She would not see Ernie again until he went on trial three years later. A week after this conversation with Robin, Ernie bombarded Craigslist with a bunch of brand new Men Seeking Women ads. Between April 20th and April 24th, Ernie made a number of internet searches looking for sites that create fake IDs. He also searched for proxy servers that would hide his location while sending emails. On April 26th, he met a woman in New Orleans from Craigslist, Katie Flash. He introduced himself as Bill Franks. Over dinner, he told her that his parents had been killed in a home invasion robbery and that he stood to inherit about $4 million when he turned 30 that July. He also told her that he was a freelance novelist and was currently working on a story about a professional gambler from Southern California whose parents, who lived in Northern California, were murdered. This professional gambler had a wife who found out that he had not been faithful so she decided to leave him while he was driving home from Vegas. It was during this drive that the murders took place, and this gambler suddenly found himself being accused of murdering his parents. But the gambler in his novel would track down the killer on his own and clear his name. During the time that Ernie was on the run, he made several attempts to gain access to money from his parents' estate. He even hired an attorney to try and help, but all of his attempts were unsuccessful. He spoke to his aunt, the executor of the estate, and she told him 
that the family no longer intended to maintain any contact or relationship with him and explicitly told him to not make any attempt to contact Ernie I. But on Father's Day, June 15th, Ernie showed up at his grandpa's house in Laguna Niguel. So Ernie I promptly called police. Ernie wasn't taken into custody. He explained that he was waiting on life insurance payouts from his parents' death, but was hoping to stop his home from being foreclosed on. And the suspicious behavior continued. In July, he began searching online for some high-profile trials, and he had watched footage of the Scott Peterson trial repeatedly over the course of two days. On July 11th, his hotel room in Vegas was searched. Among the items uncovered were U.S. Department of State documents related to lost or stolen passports, a new passport application, three knives, and a list of what appeared to be conversation points that said, Do you think I'm dangerous? What have you told them? What have they told you? What happened that Friday? Have you seen any video? And I think they know where I am. In August of 2008, Ernie offered a friend $50,000 to lie for him on the stand if he were to be charged with murder, suggesting that he could say something like, there is this person that he owed money to, and this person had threatened him and his family. But the friend kind of sort of played along, but ended up telling police about Ernie's attempt at witness tampering. Ernie III. Oh, Ernie. He took the stand to defend himself. I guess it really couldn't hurt, right? He insisted that he was at home in Brea when his parents were being murdered, and there simply wasn't enough time for him to have gone from Prim to Pleasanton, kill his parents, ransack the house, and then drive back down to Brea in that short window of time. And not only was that not enough time, it would be physically impossible, especially to continue on into the next day, to play in that bridge tournament with his grandpa. But to me, in my opinion, knowing the lifestyle that Ernie had been living, all of the traveling, all of the womanizing, not to mention the motivation and adrenaline when it comes to committing this act of violence, I could easily see Ernie making this trip no problem. Besides, when the detectives recreated the whole round trip, well, you know, like I said, with the exception of the murder part, The detective was not at all fatigued and made it through just fine. I'll come back to Ernie's testimony in a little bit. The defense also claimed that investigators looked at Ernie III first and only. They began looking at him from the start and failed to investigate any other potential suspects. They put a witness on the stand who testified that she saw a red Camaro regularly parked in the Castlewood Country Club's upper parking lot for about a year leading up to the murders, and she thought it belonged to one of the residents. There was one 1999 red convertible Camaro registered to a man named Toby Baird. The defense also presented some other potential suspects with possible motives to want to kill Ernest II. There was a friend of his who borrowed $50,000 from him to keep up on his mortgage and then another $75,000 for some remodeling projects. When the money wasn't paid back, Ernest foreclosed on him and he ended up losing his home. The defense also pointed out that many of Ernest's friends knew that he always had a lot of money on him and it could have been possible that he was followed home 
after someone noticed him winning big the night that he was killed. However, I mentioned earlier, the $9,000 was still in his pants pocket. The defense also attempted to point the finger at a couple who had once house sat for the shearers and that perhaps they realized there were valuables in the home and came back to rob them. The motive for this killing, though, was not robbery. According to court documents, when Ernie took the stand, he talked about being an Eagle Scout and how he played soccer and how he had been an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He described a good upbringing and that the family was close, but as he got older, his enjoyment of gambling and drinking did not please his parents, and this would lead to a rift between them. He also talked about the relationship between himself and his sister as being strained as well. He talked about his marriage to Robin and how they slowly drifted apart over time. He said that he reached a point where he wanted to divorce her to marry Adrian, but his father convinced him to reconsider. He said that he and Adrian broke up at least once before breaking up for a final time in February of 2008. He told the court that he began gambling when he was 21 and became a professional poker player in 2003. He acknowledged that by the beginning of 2008, he was struggling pretty badly when it came to poker. And by March of that year, he was drowning in debt. But because he had assets, namely that Brea house, he believed he was doing all right in general. He admitted that he lied to police in his initial interviews when he said that he was successful at gambling and led police to believe that he was financially secure at the time his parents were killed. And the reason he did so was because he did not want police to become suspicious of him. He testified that he believed he had enough equity in his home to pay off all of his debts, but admitted that his application for the refi was denied. But he claimed that he did not know the application was denied until after his parents were killed. But I already told you that the mortgage broker called him on March 4th, a few days before the murders, and told him the news. As for the gun he tried to purchase with his friend in Pahrump, well, he was so strongly against California gun laws that he refused to purchase the weapon in his own home state. He said that he first wanted to buy the gun in Mexico, and he wanted an unregistered gun because he refused to comply with California gun laws that went against his personal political beliefs. As for the stop in Prim, Nevada on March 7, 2008, he said it was customary for him to stop there for food and gas on a regular basis, and he wasn't sure if he was there on that day or not, but he did claim that he never went into the Nike factory outlet. He denied ever purchasing any murder kit, the bat, the gloves, and the shoes. He claimed that he arrived home in Brea sometime between 4 and 6 p.m., and when he did so, it was still daylight outside. When he was asked about the almost 18 hours his cell phone was off, he said that his phone had died, that he had battery issues ever since he was prank pushed into a swimming pool sometime in January of 2008, and his phone had gone in with him. And when his phone died on that day, he was headed from Vegas to Brea and he never noticed it. He had previously said that his phone died when he was close to his home in Brea, which contradicted this new testimony. When he arrived home, according to his testimony in court, he ate dinner, he watched some TV, and eventually dozed off after setting the alarm to wake him up the following morning, March 8th, at 5.30. He noticed his phone was dead and left it charging as he slept. 
and did not turn it back on until the morning. When asked why he didn't answer the landline phone when Robin called, he said that he rarely answers the house phone because they're almost always sales calls. Ernie was asked about the extensive cleaning and the changing of the tires on his car on March 9th. He told the court that it was his wife's idea for him to get those things done because his check engine light was on. He was going to be in California for a while because he planned to take a break from gambling while they sorted through their finances, specifically while he waited to be approved for the mortgage refi. He was accused of previously not ever having been concerned about the condition of his car or whether it was dirty inside or out, but he assured the court that he had always been meticulous about his Camaro. When confronted about his bizarre behavior at the car wash, specifically the manner in which he walked through the wash tunnel following his car as it went through, he claimed that this too was completely normal for him. He always did that. As for the tires, this was prompted as a result of his last visit to the tire shop when the employees there had pointed out to him that his tires were balding to the point that steel fibers were visible. According to Ernie, the need for new tires was urgent. The employee at the tire shop who changed Ernie's tires testified that the tires that were taken off his vehicle were in relatively good condition and no recommendation to replace the tires had been made at that time or upon his previous visit. His grandpa, Ernie I, had been with his grandson on that previous visit to the tire shop, which took place about one and a half months prior to the murders, and he said that the tire shop did not make any recommendation at that time for his grandson to replace his tires. During his testimony, Ernie attempted to divert suspicion onto at least two other individuals to whom he owed significant amounts of money to, stemming from loans he received from them for the purposes of gambling. He even went so far as to say it really wasn't he who owed the money, but he was simply the middleman, but he was still the subject of threats from both parties and insinuated that the potential of harm done to either himself or his family was imminent if these debts were not paid. Those he accused of possibly having been involved denied having anything to do with the deaths of Ernest and Charlene, and all other potential suspects or persons of interest were systematically investigated and cleared. The only person who can never be eliminated, the only person to whom the evidence consistently led the investigation back to, was none other than the defendant, Ernie III. When asked about how he was able to tell friends and associates that his parents' home had been burglarized the day that their bodies were found, when the police investigation at that point was still in the beginning stages and had not yet determined as to what exactly had happened, he claimed that when he was informed of his parents' deaths by his sister Catherine, she was the one who specifically told him that their parents' house had been ransacked. He came to the conclusion on his own that a robbery had taken place, and that is the reason that he shared this information with others that he spoke to about it. When he was asked about his urgency to gain entry into the home the day after the bodies were discovered, he claimed that it was because he needed to get the contact information of his relatives to not only inform them of the impending funeral services, but he also wanted to assist in the police investigation by way of helping them identify any items from the home that may have been missing. Investigators have stated that Ernie inquired about the location of the will inside his parents' home, but Ernie denied ever doing that. 
When he was questioned as to why he chose to stay at his friend's bachelor pad rather than staying with his family at the Hurley residence in the days following the discovery of the bodies, he said it was because they did not have enough beds for everyone. When he was asked about lying to police about his financial situation, he admitted it was because he did not want them to know that he was strapped for cash. He also told police during his initial questioning that the only money he owed was his mortgage and his credit card debt. This was a lie that he admitted to on the stand as well. He was also made to admit to all the lies that he had told to numerous women about his marital status, as well as his status of being a dad. Neither fact he had divulged to anyone, portraying himself as a single man to all of them, so he would be able to carry on his relationships with them. He admitted that he regularly lied on his tax returns regarding the amounts of money that he earned gambling, reporting far less than he actually made. He admitted that he lied to the Commerce Casino floor manager when he wanted to borrow $10,000 from the casino because he had just paid for his parents' funeral expenses. He admitted on the stand that he lied to his wife over the course of at least two years in regards to his relationship with Adrian Solomon. And of course, he admitted that he lied to her about being single. He admitted that he lied to police when he described his relationship with Robin, telling them that they got along well. And he admitted that he made that statement only days after posting numerous Craigslist ads, and he was simultaneously dating Adrian and the other woman he had met in New Orleans. He testified he had all the intentions in the world to tell both women that he was married, but detectives beat him to the punch. When he was asked about telling Robin to delete the text messages that she had sent to him during the missing 17 to 18 hours, he said that that was her idea. When he was questioned about searching for extradition laws in foreign countries, he said he made those searches because he and Robin were planning a vacation and he did not want to get arrested in a foreign country that extradited to California. Well, how is it then that this was a concern as the searches for countries with no extradition treaty with the United States was made prior to the murders? To that, Ernie had no explanation. Then the questioning got to the topic of Ernie going into hiding. He testified that he became worried when he heard in a news report that investigators were looking for witnesses that may have seen a red Camaro at the Castlewood Country Club the night that his parents were murdered. He explained that when a $25,000 reward was offered for information leading to the apprehension of his parents' killer, he was certain that that amount of money would be motivation enough for someone to find footage of his car going into the Castlewood Country Club from previous visits to his parents' house during Christmas and attempt to doctor the footage, to tamper with the time and date stamp in an effort to frame him in order to collect on that reward. But when cross-examined about his trip to Castlewood the previous Christmas, he was made to admit that they had not taken his Camaro on that trip. They took Robin's car but he continued to insist that there was plenty of times that he could have been recorded coming and going from his parents' house. And it was possible that someone tampered with it to make it appear that the footage was recorded the night of the murders. Ernie talked about his time he spent in hiding. He said he was first in and around the Sacramento area, and then he rented a motel room in Oregon. He said during this time he had been consuming copious amounts of alcohol and his computer searches were random and all over the place as a result of that. He supported himself with money that he borrowed from the Commerce Casino, from the Bellagio in Las Vegas, 
Antti withdrew $2,000 from his joint account with Robin. While he was in Oregon, he said that he placed numerous Craigslist ads because he did not know where he was going to end up next. He testified that in April, he left Oregon and went to Louisiana to go to the jazz festival, and he made stops at casinos along the way to earn money. He stayed in New Orleans for about two weeks and then went to Mississippi for a couple of nights and then came back to Vegas towards the end of May and stayed there for about a month and a half or so. In July, he stayed with a gambling associate for about a week and then he went to Mesquite, Nevada in August. And it was in Mesquite that he met a woman named Kim Olson and he was staying at her place in Las Vegas for about six months up until the time of his arrest. In January of 2009, Ernie filed a motion in court to get his hands on his share of his parents' estate. He had a hearing scheduled for the following month on February 27, 2009, but he was taken into custody and charged with murder on February 23rd before his court date ever arrived. He did admit that when he was young, he knew his parents had written their will in such a way that in the event of their deaths, he would get his share of the inheritance when he turned 30, but he testified that he had forgotten all about that. Ernie Shearer III denied killing his mother and father. He denied that he was there at his parents' house the evening that they were killed. He denied that it was his car in the surveillance video. He denied going to the Nike factory outlet in Prem. He denied purchasing the size 12 Nikes, the baseball bat, and the soccer goalie gloves. He denied seeing or speaking to his grandfather's housemate the day after the killing. He denied all the bizarre behaviors noted by anyone and everyone who saw him in the days following the murders. And he denied that he offered a friend $50,000 to lie for him to police. After 55 days of trial, on March 28, 2011, the jury found Ernie III guilty on two counts of first-degree murder with a special circumstance that he personally used a deadly weapon. On May 20, 2011, he was sentenced to two life terms to run consecutively with no possibility of parole, plus two years for the weapons charge. All of his appeals thus far have been denied. Ernie Shearer III is currently serving out his life sentence in California's High Desert State Prison. Today, he is 40 years old. The 10th anniversary of the Shearer's death passed last March. This month marks the 11th. Catherine started a memorial scholarship fund in her parents' honor at the university at which she taught accounting. And through this, it was her way of continuing to keep the memory of her parents alive. She does not communicate with Ernie anymore. She has been able to find forgiveness. She does not harbor any anger towards him. She simply doesn't have room for him in her life any longer. And sadly, she does not communicate with her nephew, Ernie the Fourth either. She isn't sure why, but Robin has chosen to not communicate with her any longer, and it had been several years leading up to the 10th anniversary since she had heard from her. And she understands that as well. And sometimes people need to leave the past in the past. And this brings this 82nd episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case or any of the other cases that we have covered on the show, 
or other podcasts that you've listened to recently, documentaries that you've watched or books that you've read, please feel free to request to join the Facebook group. Like the page and join the group. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Pod and on Instagram at Pod. The most recent bonus episode on Patreon is now available as well. We talk about another suspicious staircase death that took place right here in California. So if you are on Patreon, check that out. And if you're not, then, well, what are you waiting for? Most of our episodes you can unlock for as little as $1 a month. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find the links to all of the shows on the network, to our merchandise store, to the blog, or if you would just like to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.